this is the Seminole Wars Authority. Hello and welcome. A primary conceit of a newspaper is that it is the purported first draft of a history. Newspapers inform the public, but they also tended to reflect the public's opinion, and that opinion for waging the Seminole Wars waned over time, as did newspaper coverage. How did local and national newspapers present the Seminole Wars in print? Was the war always front page news? How did the war's placement compare to other events of its time? What did the newspapers get right in what they reported from the field of battle and the fog of war? And what constrained newspapers from offering a fuller treatment of the war? In the first of a two-part episode, Jesse Marshall returns to the authority. He has reviewed a stack of 19th century newspapers from the Seminole Wars Foundation's archives and assesses how much of their war reporting has stood the test of time. Jesse Marshall, welcome back to the Seminole Wars Authority. Glad to be back. Jesse, you're a man who spends his leisure time reading 19th century newspapers, especially those of the Seminole War era. Today, you're gonna to review a batch that the Seminole Wars Foundation owns. What made newspapers so important as a means of transmitting information about the Seminole Wars? And what can you reveal about these newspapers? Principal means by which the public derived its political and local and national information in the early 1800s via the newspaper. Essentially the disposable, large formatted, multi-paged, daily or weekly in some cases, periodical, Almost every town in the Union, of course, had its own newspaper. We have local newspapers. I've been through a couple of those. We could see in the average local newspaper, like, uh, for example, Newburyport, Massachusetts, the Daily Herald. You might find, uh, for example, I'm looking at Friday, May 3rd, 1839, their advertisement page. You'll see references to Boston Mill Dam Nails. You can buy up to 10,000 pounds of them at a time, 700 bushels of corn, et cetera, et cetera. Shoemakers, hat makers, all your local store advertisements. So you see the newspapers, even 200 years ago, they were very little different than the newspaper up to the close of the 20th century. The paper, of course, made its revenues in great measure by selling ad space. They also frequently published notices of power of attorney and so forth. The first pages would usually have the foremost news of the day. And for example, this very Daily Herald, 1839, May 3rd, on the front page, we see a, a notice of the Florida War. Now it's interesting to note that from the period of about 1815 through the 1850s, when the Seminole Wars were referenced, the first Seminole War of 1818, as we would frequently call it, and was simply referred to as the Seminole War. And it, an obvious distinction is that in the 1835-1842 period, the newspapers distinguished the Seminole War of 1818 from what we call the Second Seminole War by referring to it as the Florida War. So we see in the Daily Herald notices of the Florida War. By that time, in May 1839, there was a great deal of discussion about the continuation of the conflict, whether it was worthwhile to pursue 
the full immigration of the Seminole to the West. And uh, we see from this particular newsprint, notice that the Major General of the Army, then General Alexander Maycomb, had proceeded to Florida, had arrived at Black Creek, and that his arrival in Florida has been announced in the Southern Papers and positively stated that the terms in which he is authorized to propose a peace are that the Indians shall be allowed to remain in the territory and retain a part of that country for which they have fought so long and obstinately since 1835. The whole matter, it says, in dispute with the Seminoles, has been whether they should be allowed to remain in the territory or should be compelled to entirely emigrate like other tribes across the Mississippi. They have insisted on remaining, and the government has insisted on their removal, and hence the war. It would have been easy to have terminated the dispute at any time within the first two years from its commencement, had the government been willing to concede what they now potentially offer. Had they indeed made this concession in the beginning, the whole war might have been avoided. So that's from May 3rd, 1839. That's a reference to General Maycomb's uh, mission to the Seminole. He did conclude a agreement with some Seminole chiefs to suspend hostilities if the Seminoles would remove to points in the extreme southern part of the Florida Peninsula. This peace agreement was never technically a treaty. It was essentially an abatement of military operations. It did not last long. It concluded with the attack by several parties of Seminoles upon the trade store and Army Dragoon camp established on the Caloosahatchee River and in sacking the uh, camp there and killing a number of the dragoons. Even the uh, Army could not consider that the uh, peace agreement with Macomb was yet in effect, and so the, the war then recommenced again until 1842. That's a significant observation from the newspapers in 1839. Well, of course, this is from a newspaper in Newburyport, Massachusetts, where there was no particular concern about Seminole raiding parties and so forth. If you were to look at a Florida newspaper from the same period, you would potentially find different opinions. For example, in the Florida newspapers, principally Democrat newspapers would have supported a continuation of the war for the most part, if for no other reason to ensure that there would be no future seminal conflict within the peninsula. However, this was not universal. In East Florida, the area uh, east of the Suwannee River, it was noted in some of the papers that Colonel John Warren, among others of the leading Florida militia officers in East Florida, who had been among the foremost in the field against the Seminoles for now almost three years, supported General Maycomb's mission, uh, hoping that peace could be established on any terms. So there's, of course, political division notable. I, I will say this, about reading period newspapers, they have no illustrations per se, with multiple columns of plain print, a majority of it having... Um, references to all sorts of particular subjects, including quotes from new published books and articles and so forth, and intelligence and letters from all different quarters to the local readers. It sometimes is difficult to gauge if there even is a party preference for the newspaper by the text itself or its headline. 
So it would be obvious where the newspaper was named something like the Democrat or the Whig, which were the two principal party divisions of the 1830s. If you can go chronologically, we have the Seminole War of 1818, and I'm looking at the Boston Recorder of Tuesday morning, April 21, 1818. It has references to a Baptist Irish society uh, developing locally, uh, a lot of local news and so forth. At that time period, we flip back to page three, and we have domestic intelligence from the Savannah Museum on the fourth instant. I should note that when one reads these period newspapers, you'll frequently see a reference to a date in this manner. It'll say the fourth ultimo or the fourth instant. And ultimo is a reference to the previous month and instant means the current month. We have a reference here in this particular edition from General W.M. McIntosh, the commander of the Friendly Creek Indians in the field with the United States that he's communicated to the U.S. factor at Fort Mitchell in Alabama, which was not yet a state in 1818, was became a state the next year. He details his operations against the hostile Indians, meaning along the Florida border. McIntosh and his men left Fort Mitchell on 26th February, and four days after, took three hostile Indians who had been engaged in firing upon our boats as they descended the Flint River. He took them to the commanding officer at Fort Gaines, who refused to have anything to do with them, and they were accordingly dealt with according to the rules of Indian warfare that is put to death. From the 2nd to the 10th, Ultimo, McIntosh was reinforced by about 20 of the hostile Indians who came in under a white flag to join him. From these, he obtained information of a collection of warriors under the command of Red Ground Chief on the Chabuli Creek. On approaching their station on the 13th Ultimo, McIntosh reports, quote, the creek swamp was so bad we could not pass it for the high water. My men had to leave their clothes and provisions and swim better than one half the swamp, about six miles wide. We marched within two miles of his station, and the next morning we surrounded his place, but he was gone, and we could not follow him till we could get some provisions we had left behind us. Myself and Major Hawkins followed him and overtook his party, and he got away from us with about 30 men. We have taken 53 men and 180 women and children prisoners without the firing of a gun, and we killed 10 men that tried to make their escape. I have not lost a man since leaving Fort Mitchell. He would not have got away from us, but he had some cattle on hand that he tried to drive out of our way. So I sent a hundred men to take him and his cattle. When they came in sight, he and his party, being well-mounted on horses, all got away. We got what cattle he had with them, though. We are very scarce of provisions, and I have sent the women and children up into our nation. As for the men, I am going to take them to General Jackson. Now there is no danger on the west side of the Chattahoochee River, as this was all the party that was on this side. We have now to look for our enemy on the east side of the river. So, you know, even in Boston, you can read the reports of the friendly Creek Chief McIntosh about his uh, operations during the course of the Seminole War, which, of course, became more controversial in the post-war of 1812 era when General Jackson was running for president. 
the papers of the country debated the issue of the Seminole War of the previous decade and whether Jackson had behaved according to his orders or whether he had behaved lawlessly in that campaign. In any case, Jackson was finally elected president in 1828. The Second Seminole War, or Florida War, commences in earnest in December 1835. These were local papers that covered topics of national import. What did the national newspapers report? Besides the local papers, we can go to national papers, and among the foremost in that era was the National Intelligencer, produced in Washington, D.C. Another uh, popular national paper of the time was the Congressional Globe, excuse me. And uh, so we have here a pretty complete set of the National Intelligencer in the, during the year 1836. And what we notice when we uh, look through it is very little reference to the, initially anyway, to the foremost battle of 1835 in Florida, uh, the destruction of Major Dade's command on December 28, 1835. Major Dade and several officers and nearly 100 of his men were killed in action when ambushed by Micanopy and his Seminole warriors. Now, Major Dade, of course, uh, never reached Fort King, and the officers and soldiers at Fort Brooke, 60 miles south, uh, learned of the disaster very soon after when a few of the survivors of the command returned. But the command at Fort Brooke had no means of communication with the headquarters of the Army in Florida under General Clinch, which was then at, at Fort Drain, which is on the other side of the Seminole Reservation. So what does this tell us? The consequence, we can see that reading the newspapers, you're not going to get an exact chronological accounting of what's going on in Florida. And for an example, we have on January 19, 1836, the National Intelligencer gives us breaking news about incidents in Florida. And in fact, it's on the last page. Distressing intelligence from Florida. And it comes from Jacksonville. Notice from Jacksonville, Florida, on the East Coast, not far from the Georgia border, a battle has been fought on the 31st Ultimo. Well, that means December 1835. And the battle of which they speak is General Clinch's battle of December 31 just a few days after Major Dade's battle. But Clinch's battle, called the Battle of Withlacoochee, was fought by that general in his command who had absolutely no knowledge of the destruction of Major Dade's command at that time. As soon as the battle was fought and Clinch and his men returned to their position, the notice of the action was quickly sent to the civilized parts of the United States and of course found its way into the papers. And we see these references that the officers and men engaged in the action with great bravery. At the first onset, the Indians on one flank leaped from their hiding places and in front of the thicket formed boldly into a line with Powell at their head. That's Osceola. At this moment, the fire of the white troops did execution, driving the Indians into their coverts again. It's noted the engagement lasted one hour and five minutes and a return of killed and wounded in the battle given by W.J. Mills, Lieutenant Colonel of the Florida Militia, gives the loss among the regular troops as two artificers and two privates killed, 
One captain, a first lieutenant, and one second lieutenant, two sergeants, four corporals, and 43 privates wounded for a total of four killed and 52 wounded. And the 4th Regiment of Florida Militia suffered the wounds of Colonel John Warren, Major Cooper, Lieutenant John Yeomans, and Privates Tyson and Higginbottom. Uh, the Leon County Militia suffered two privates slightly wounded for seven wounded militiamen. Many of the soldiers in the action were shot through their clothes and some horses killed and wounded. General Clinch had one ball pass through his cap and one through his jacket sleeve. The firing was heavy during the action, and the bushes literally cut up around us. How it was that more were not shot, I cannot tell, says Lieutenant Colonel Mills. So that's on January 19th. Now, in this particular national paper, it's not really until January 26th that we finally get notice of the disaster that befell Major Dade and his uh, unfortunate detachment. Tuesday, January 26th, 1836, and now the news from Florida is advanced to the front page of the National Intelligencer. Yesterday's mail, which would have been January 25th, brought news by way of New Orleans of the surprise and massacre by the Seminole Indians of two companies of United States troops under Major Dade. So you see the news from Fort Brooke by water had reached New Orleans and from thence notice of the fate of Major Dade's detachment then passes into the newsprints of the country. Major Dade was shot off his horse on the commencement of the attack. Captain Gardner and Frazier soon after fell mortally wounded. Lieutenants Bassinger, Henderson, Mudge, Keith, and Dr. Gatlin surged into the detachment were all slain. So little were the troops aware of their danger before the attack, they did not see an Indian until many shots had been fired. Colonel Twiggs of the United States Army, Twiggs being in Louisiana at the time, has chartered the steamboat Merchant and started with four companies of troops from New Orleans to Tampa Bay. Major Belton was at Tampa Bay with the forces under command there. The public sympathy will be deeply excited by this news. Even here, at such a distance from the scene, it may be readily imagined, therefore, that people in all parts of the country and adjacent will come as strongly as they can to the aid of the troops and people in imminent danger in Florida. The above attack and massacre, in fact, they refer to it as a massacre, the reader will see took place on the 28th of December. The battle between General Clinch and the Indians took place on the 31st. The distance between the two scenes of battle being not greater than could have been traveled in an intervening time. Even the newspaper is pointing out that the situation in Florida is such that even though General Clinch's battle was fought within a very small space of the action of Major Dade, it was only, of course, late in the next month of January, and the prints of this national paper, late in the next month, and the first notice coming through the Atlantic news channels of Clinch's battle, and only secondarily through New Orleans via Tampa Bay, notice of Major Dade's battle. It was by January 21st, 1836, that President Jackson had charged affairs dealing with the Florida War to General Winfield Scott. The newsprints over the next several months are filled with notices of mobilizing militia and volunteer corps from several states to take the field with what regular troops could be marshaled from their seacoast forts and garrisons. Through 1836, you'll read letters from the soldiery in the field back to their hometown papers. There were no major battles particularly resulting from General Scott's operations, but we can see in the Milledgeville Southern Recorder from Milledgeville, Georgia, letters and notices relative to, for example, the fighting that 
Major Mark Cooper's battalion of Georgia volunteers engaged in while garrisoning Fort Cooper in the midst of the Seminoles country. We can jump ahead to the National Intelligencer's coverage uh, to July 1836. And by no means, by the way, did the Florida War News dominate the news of the time on a national level. What you see is that it was being given place in the front page. It's not back page news. There will be references to elections in Louisiana here, July 26, 1836, movements in Baltimore, committees reporting resolutions to form stockholders for railroad companies, notices of the incidents in Texas and Mexico, marriage notices. So what we also see is that the operations in Florida no longer are taking up much space. And the reason for that is because by April and May of 1836, the Army of Volunteers and Militia that General Scott had formed had already been disbanded, those troops having only a three-month term of service. The result was that only a skeleton force of regular troops remained in the Florida Territory through the summer. Now, the diseases incident to operations in swampy country, tropical diseases, insect-borne, etc., they were not well understood at the time. And consequently, the custom was to button up the soldiers in the Florida's environment particularly, to button them up in garrisons as near the seacoast as possible where they wouldn't be stricken so heavily by disease. Even in the best of climates, disease was a constant wear upon the personnel of the Army of the time. But in Florida, it could be pretty extreme. And it was noted that the heat of the day itself was enough to sap the strength of many fellows who were used to even a cooler climate in the summer of the North. But what we do have here, since there are no particular military operations ongoing in Florida, we have from the Secretary of War notice of the condition of the military forces of the country. Within a few months, they're going to be marshaled once again to take the field once more against the Seminoles. This would be repeated over the next several years. The report of the Secretary of War from December 3rd, 1836. So we're going to jump to December 20, 1836, and they're printing notices relative to the operations in Florida, latest from Florida. They note that General Thomas Jessup has arrived at Volusia from Tampa Bay with 500 troops mounted composed of Alabama volunteers and Marines, capturing on their march between 30 and 40 Negroes and one Indian. General Jessup has succeeded in obtaining much valuable information from the prisoners. They state that there is a certain place, 300 Negroes, that can be readily taken prisoner that the Seminole Chief Jumper has retired from the field, has lost most of his men, that the Indians had generally gone further south with the exception of Powell, a.k.a. Osceola, who has with him at Wahoo Swamp about 80 warriors and has determined to die in the field. General Call has returned from the field, and the troops under General Jessup took up their line of march against the enemy on the 10th and 11th, etc., etc. So... You'll find a lot of these simple and somewhat bombastic notices, but in the same volume we have the, and this is something that the period newspapers have a certain advantage with, they frequently will fill their columns with the transcriptions of congressional debates entire, and they'll also reproduce in their entirety most of the new laws that are passed, also voluminous correspondence and public 
records. So in other words, when the annual reports of the different bureaus of the federal government are produced, the newspapers of the country would often reproduce them entire. Why would they do that? Well, it was so that the public could know what the government was doing, obviously. Was publishing such notices common practice, say, in the United Kingdom? In England, you might have the uh, posted notices and so forth. But in America, in the early republic, it was considered significantly advantageous that the public could so easily acquire the data about the reports of the government and its doings. And so the interim Secretary of War has reported here in December 1836 the nature of the operations in the Florida War. He states, for example, that the regular army, according to its last return, numbered 6,283 officers and men. However, after deducting from various circumstances, long-standing sickness, detachments, etc., that there was, in fact, for available for field service at most 4,282 men, so less than 5,000. However, even the total actual enlisted force of 6,283 was 1,675 fewer than the allowed table. By no means was the regular army complete, nor was even every man that was in service capable for active service in the field. And that partly explains why so many militia and volunteer units were employed during the Florida War, the Second Seminole War, because the regular army, they couldn't send the whole 5,000 men to Florida. They were garrisoning the seacoast fortifications, as well as operating on the western frontiers and forts and so forth. By December of 36, it notes the regular force serving in Florida included the four regiments of artillery, with the exception of five companies, also eight companies of the 4th Regiment of Infantry, one company of Dragoons, and a battalion of 320 U.S. Marines, making in the aggregate about 2,000, according to the latest returns received at the Adjutant General's Office. So not quite half of the regular military force of the country was in Florida by the close of the first year of the Florida War. Now, the Secretary of War also reports upon Indian affairs generally. He states that the Commissioner of Indian Affairs has reported that within the year, from the beginning of the Second Seminole War to December 1836, more than 18,000 Indians, of whom 400 were Seminoles, 16,900 Creeks, and the remainder of Potawatomies, have reached the west bank of the Mississippi on their way to their new homes in the Indian Territory, and that arrangements have been made for the removal of the residue of those tribes at an early day as circumstances shall allow. The mere process of removal has been conducted with greater expedition, as much economy, and as little of suffering and privation to the Indians as in former years, but the opposition made by the hostile portions of the Seminoles and Creeks, already noticed under former heads, has subjected the government in those cases to the painful necessity of resorting to coercive measures, which in respect to the Seminoles are yet continued. That's his explanation. goes on to continue about the ongoing Indian removal process relative to various tribes elsewhere in the eastern states. And then we come to his report on the condition of the militia and volunteers of the country. He notes that within the last year, in other words, since the commencement of the Florida War, no less than 24,500 militia and volunteers have been mustered into the service of the United States as these forces, when in actual service, 
form a part of the Army of the United States, such particulars concerning those employed during the year as seem proper to be noticed in this report have been presented under preceding heads. He notes that there was an ongoing issue relative to the defective organization of the militia, uh, and that the previous year there had been references made by the administration to reforming the militia system through the laws of Congress, but the Secretary of War here notes that no legislative action has been had on the subject. He notes the matter has been very often presented to the consideration of Congress, and until the constitutional power of organizing, arming, and disciplining this arm of national defense shall have been more adequately exercised, it will continue to be a duty to invoke their enlightened interposition. In other words, even if Congress did not want to modify the Militia Act of 1792, the administration that that Secretary of War was working for intended to annually demand that Congress enact some modifications to the system. No actual modifications were forthcoming. In fact, my understanding is that 1792 Militia Act was only repealed about 1903. So the Seminole War continues through the 1840s. It's in 1837 and 1838. The newspapers have occasional references to the war, but it no longer bears the sort of popular notices that the first year gave it. Again, when General Scott formed his army, it was from militia and volunteer corps from the settled parts of the South, principally New Orleans, Charleston, etc. So these more cosmopolitan militia, as it were, many of them wrote books and kept memoirs of their participation. Later, Judge A.B. Meek of Alabama kept a diary during the campaign. During the course of the year 1836, a few journals by volunteer and militia soldiers in the campaign were published as books or pamphlets. For the most part, the public's interest in the Florida War as big news waned. And until the Battle of Okeechobee in December 1837, which of course was a relatively large combat and the bloodiest combat since Major Dade's battle in 1835, there was suddenly a, a certain renewal of public interest in the war as far as dramatic news went. But you'll start to see that by 1838, again, the war continues to move on in a sort of uh, desultory fashion. The Seminoles, for the most part, avoiding battle after January 1838, and so there wasn't really much to report other than the occasional massacre and so forth. So again, I'm looking here at the Worcester Palladium of Wednesday, April 12th, 1837. I scan the first page, no particular notice of the Florida War at all. You have to go to the middle pages to find notices uh, relative to the continuation of the struggle. In fact, by that period of time, when the U.S. was raising militia and volunteer corps, it started doing so from the more rural regions. You'll see that by the end of 1837, they had raised Missouri volunteers for the operations in Florida, and many of them ended up at the Battle of Okeechobee under Colonel Taylor's command. And the newspapers in Missouri reported on the battle in the aftermath of the return of those Missouri volunteers, developing a sort of controversy. The Missouri veterans disliked Colonel Taylor's official report of the battle, and so some of them made interesting letters to the editors of their local papers explaining their particular view of Colonel Taylor's report. 
and what they didn't like about it. And many of these notices in the print were picked up by the Missouri legislature, which in 1838-39 formed a board to review and interview several veteran officers and men of that expedition to determine if they should, as a state, censor Colonel Taylor for the manner of his official report. Much of the detail of that is contained in a uh, rather voluminous record of the Missouri veterans' depositions. It's very much worth reading. It's on microfilm at the National Archives. They have a copy of it because it actually shows that the veterans themselves did not so much contest against Colonel Taylor's statement that the Missouri regiment uh, broke during the battle. What they really didn't like was the failure of Colonel Taylor to point out that they did not break under fire, that it was after the fire of the Seminoles had abated on their front that the command had withdrawn, whereas Colonel Taylor, briefly just stating the regiment mostly broke, however, only after displaying a significant fighting spirit that that even Taylor admits was rare among raw troops of their character without discipline, really only a few weeks embodied and in the field. But the spareness of Taylor's report gave to the mind of many readers the impression that the Missourians had fled under fire, and that's what the Missourians didn't like. So they took to their papers to try to explain their viewpoint on that. The Seminole War continued through 1842, and in mid-1842, or late, late spring, President John Tyler determined upon a cessation of hostilities, not dissimilar to that attempted by the previous administration, sending General Maycomb to Florida, and that failed effort. But President Tyler, after pressing the war under Colonel William J. Worth to the utmost, having the regular troops in Florida continue campaigning even through the summer of 1841, which was successful because the Seminoles had been very used to the troops withdrawing from active operations in the summertime. And that gave the Seminole time to collect their limited crops, et cetera, and catch their breath from avoiding military patrols in the winters. In 1841, the orders were to press operations through the summer, regardless of the consequences to the health of the troops. It was actually found that it was not deleterious to the health of the troops any more than otherwise, but that it was significant in leading to many Seminoles surrendering after their foodstuffs and crops had been destroyed. So in the spring of 42, we see President Tyler noticing that with a very small number of Seminole remaining in Florida, unwilling to surrender and emigrate, he's determined upon a cessation of hostilities. So we come to the New York Weekly Tribune, published by Mr. Greeley and Mr. McElrath, of Saturday, May 21st, 1842. And one would think that the conclusion of a war that has gone on so long would merit a certain notice relative to the ending of this painful and bloody conflict. In fact, the most fatal and expensive war with an Indian tribe that we had, we see only on, let's see, page one, two, three, four, five, six. Page 7 News, page 7 News, end of the Florida War, a very slight headline from the War Department, May 10th, 1842. The communication of Colonel Worth of the 14th of February last and the suggestions of the Major General commanding the Army contained in his letter of the 27th Ultimo 
in relation to the state of affairs in Florida and the continuance of hostilities there have been maturely considered, and I have now to communicate to the Major General commanding the Army, which was by that time Winfield Scott, the views of the President upon the subject. Now, this letter is from J.C. Spencer, the Secretary of War. The very reduced number of the hostile Indians now in Florida, believed not to exceed 240, including probably 80 warriors, would seem to indicate that all has been accomplished which can be affected by the employment of large military force in offensive operations, unless such operations are to be continued until the last Indian in the peninsula shall be destroyed or captured, there must be some period when they should cease. The period, it is believed, has now arrived, and the protection of the inhabitants must be secured by other means, which it is believed can be effectually employed for that purpose. The season is approaching, which forbids the active and energetic movements which have distinguished the Army in Florida, particularly during last year, and the course of measures intended to be pursued must now be determined. The communications of the governor of Florida, of many of its intelligent citizens, and of various distinguished officers of the Army corroborate the views expressed by Colonel Worth of the propriety of terminating the present system of hostilities with the few Indians remaining in the territory. Anxious to curtail the extraordinary expense incident to the warfare and sincerely desirous of promoting peace, the president directs that Colonel Worth be authorized as soon as he shall deem it expedient to declare that hostilities against the Indians in Florida have ceased and that they will not be renewed unless provoked by new aggressions on their part and that they will accordingly cease until their renewal be authorized by the proper authority. But this is not to be understood as forbidding any acts of self-defense, either by the troops or citizens, against any attempt of Indians to molest them. Such a reduction of the military force in Florida, as may be made consistently with the protection of the inhabitants, will therefore immediately be made, and the troops ordered out of the territory, will be stationed as the exigency of the public service require. But it is deemed advisable that a force equal to two regiments be retained to form a cordon or line of protection for the frontier settlements. The action of Congress will be invited to aid in the defense of the territory by the settlement of our citizens there and offering them inducement for such settlement by gratuities of land, by allowing them rations for subsistence, and by the loan of arms. Until the decision of Congress is had on the subject, it is desirable that the settlements to be made should be within such line of protection as shall be established by Colonel Worth, who will take the necessary measures to effect this arrangement. He will use the means he possesses of communicating with the Indians, yet remaining, and inducing them to consult their true interests by joining their brethren in the West. Shipments of forage and subsistence to Florida will be suspended until expressly called for by the officer in command there. The Quartermaster General will instruct the senior officer of his department in Florida as to the manner of disposing of the public property there that may not be required for use under the arrangement now directed such as mules, horses, wagons, etc., subject to the orders of the commanding officer in Florida. Colonel Worth will be informed that the naval forces on the coast has been directed by Secretary of the Navy to withdraw whenever the commander in Florida shall declare a cessation of hostilities, 
and shall deem their services no longer necessary. The Major General commanding the Army will please communicate these directions to Colonel Worth and give such further and other orders as may be necessary or proper to carry them into effect. These the views of the President. So, seventh page of the national paper, we have that notice of the conclusion of the hostilities of the Florida War. By no means a dramatic conclusion to that struggle. It was 1849. The frontier in Florida had an Indian War scare that led a number of U.S. troops that were occupying Mexico in the aftermath of the Mexican War to be dispatched across the Gulf back to Florida to reinforce that cordon, that frontier cordon in South Florida, to separate the remaining Seminoles from the settlements. Now, you'll notice in that 1842 notice was a statement that the Army would maintain an equivalency of about two regiments to maintain posts and patrols and maintain that frontier in South Florida, but with the intent that by inducing settlers to move into that frontier zone who were capable of defending themselves with the aid of federal subsistence and weapons, that they wouldn't need to keep the troops. In other words, the armed settlers would themselves be able to defend the frontier, as it were. And that, of course, is relative to the Armed Occupation Act of 1842, which is well known. It was, in a measure, a continuation of necessary incidents from 1836, with the Seminole War reaching a point of raid and violence, where Seminole raiders would strike at the settlements even outside of the Seminole Reservation. It drove a large number of Florida's settlers to leave the territory, go back into Georgia or Alabama or wherever else, and this threatened to reduce the population of the territory to such an extent that it would have required the permanent occupation of U.S. troops to defend the territory. Now, the result was, considering that the reduced number of militia of the territory that remained were in, in such a condition that the federal government from 1836 had supplied rations to many of the settlers already for a period of years to supplement their rations, considering that their husbands were spending sometimes several months a year in active service with militia corps volunteers that were under federal muster. While they were so acting, they couldn't farm. And the result was that even though they were being paid the $6 a month of a U.S. soldier while in federal service, you couldn't go to a grocery store and buy food, you see. The pay was was the pay, but it wouldn't necessarily feed your family in this instance. So the federal government had already been supplying food to many of the forted up settlements in northern peninsular Florida and even some of the people, refugees at Tampa Bay who had abandoned their farms at the outbreak of the war. The Armed Occupation Act, with its reference to the military assisting the armed occupationists in reoccupying the frontier zone and even pressing that frontier further south than Tampa Bay, that was the new part. The settler had the option of getting an actual patent on the federal land that surrounded their homesteads. In the Third Seminole War, or the Billy Bolegs War, as just many like to call it, of 1855 to 58, we have the circumstances of a small Seminole raiding party under Asen Tustanugi pressing north from the Everglades and striking at points around Tampa Bay and northwards and doing a considerable amount of damage for the size of the party. 
They were finally in action near Fort Meade and were pretty much broken up as a war party and in action along the Peace River then in the spring of 1856. And thereafter, for the next year and a half, U.S. troops, including Florida volunteers and some Florida militia, uh, were traversing the Everglades, pursuing the Seminoles, for the most part not finding them, although by the close of the war, a certain number of Seminoles had surrendered and, and were immigrated. After 1858, military operations against the Seminole had essentially ceased in their entirety. I would like to notice, too, that in the same issue of the New York Weekly Tribune that gives us the its seventh page notice of the close of the Florida War, there's an interesting notice here of the newfangled ideas. An Association on Principles of the True Organization of Society. This is actually on the third page. So on third page, we have the advocates of the association in the city of New York have purchased a column in our New York Daily Tribune. The system of association advocated through the Tribune, discovered by Mr. Charles Fourier, who has devoted 40 years of patient and arduous study to the discovery and elaboration of the system which he has given to the world, notices that he had passed away, in fact, in 1837. Quote, this doctrine was scarcely known 10 years ago, and it has since then spread to almost every civilized country on the globe. It is a very large number of disciples in France, England, Germany, and the United States, and quite a number in Italy, Spain, and South America. There are two papers in Paris and one in London devoted exclusively to the cause and the Tribune offers in this country a powerful means of propagation. One of the leading doctrines of the advocates of association is that the evils that which afflict society are social and not political, and that social reform only can eradicate them. They maintain that political and administrative reforms cannot reach social evils, such as poverty, ignorance, vice, crime, etc., and that if the human race are ever to be freed from these scourges, a reform in the present defective organization of society must be effected. Among the following are some of the practical objects of this new theory. First, to dignify labor or industry and render it not only honorable, but attractive. Labor being at present and for a long time previous, repugnant, degrading, and ill-requited, all avoided who can, so that not more than one-third of the populace is engaged in productive activity. So this, of course, is this new revolutionary idea that rather than people trying to avoid manual labor, we have to convince them that it's a good thing. Also guaranteed to all, to the man, the woman, and the child, the means of acquiring property so that none may be pecuniarily dependent. And uh, that's interesting. The child should have the means of acquiring property. I wonder if this is an originator of the idea of paying a child an allowance uh, of some kind, something that was pretty common by the mid-20th century, to guarantee to all the right of labor and the means of obtaining it and the full enjoyment of the product of their labor. Also, to guarantee to each child a practical and scientific education, which will call out its faculties and talents and make it all that nature intended it to be. Also to secure a safe and profitable investment for capital, and to secure a just division of profits. 
to secure a true and harmonious development of the passions employed in art, science, and industry, and to affect the immense economies which result from large assemblages, well supplied with capital, credit, and means, and to make truth, justice, and productive industry the avenues to rank and fortune in society. So the association will respect all true and legitimate sentiments. A work entitled The Social Destiny of Man has been written on the subject by A. Brisbane, which contains a description of the system. The Democratic and the Boston Quarterly Reviews are publishing a series of articles on this new system from his pen. Out with the old, in with the new. The Florida War closes, and there's this article on the new dawn of social organization of society. Interesting. We'll leave it there. Jesse Marshall, thanks again for joining us for the Seminole Wars Authority. It was great to talk with you again. This podcast is copyright 2023. The Seminole Wars Foundation, all rights reserved. Find us on the web at seminolewars.podbean.com or seminolewars.us. Front and back bumper music courtesy of the U.S. Navy Band.